Hi there, and welcome to the Sanctuary Podcast. Our vision is to find sanctuary in Christ and then to be sanctuary to each other and express sanctuary to this city. And so for us, success is loving well, one person at a time. And if we can help you in any way, please do feel free to reach out, jump onto our website, sanctuarysf.com, and we would love to connect. Anyway, back to the podcast. It's a real joy and privilege to be with you in San Francisco with the new church plant. It's a delight to actually meet you in this extraordinary way and uh, open the Bible with you. Uh, It's been a joy to enter into your worship and uh, just feel part of your being a community together. So I do hope pray that I can be a blessing to you in the Word of God. Uh, The theme of grace, as Thomas said, has been very releasing for me. Uh, I had been a pastor uh, for some years before I really understood God's grace. I'd been converted from a very ungodly background. My parents were not Christians. I wasn't in a Christian family. And then uh, got saved. I was very backslidden. I came through to God wholeheartedly and then began to try to serve him with my whole heart. Went to theological college, became a pastor. But I would say much of the times, this kind of cloud of am I doing enough? Do I pray enough? Am I reading the Bible enough? And often that sense of kind of falling short of what God wanted from me. And I believe it's actually to do with a, a correct understanding of what the Bible says Jesus has done for us. So I'm just going to read to you, first of all, one verse from Romans and chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 and verse 17. And, and I'm reading from the American Standard. So because I'm in this America, hey, American Standard. So verse 17 of Romans 5 says this, and, and the whole chapter is comparing and contrasting the devastation that came through Adam's rebellion, how Adam polluted the whole human race, made us all what the Bible calls sons of disobedience. He wrecked the whole human race, really. And then Jesus came and brought to birth another race in Christ. So you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. And these things come out right through this chapter. And uh, I'm just going to read one of many verses that say something a bit similar. Okay, so it's chapter 5, verse 17. If by the transgression of the one, that's Adam, death reigned through that one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Okay, you're either affected by what Adam did or you're affected by what Christ did. And here, a very vivid phrase, it says that we reign in life. That's a a very uh, expressive kind of statement. Uh, You're on top, you're reigning, and uh, you're not under things. This is the mark of the believer, is reigning in life. And there are other similar verses in the Bible. It says we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're not just conquerors, we're more than conquerors. And then again it says he always leads us in his triumph in Christ Jesus. So we're more than conquerors, we're reigning in life, we're always in triumph. I mean, these are very expressive statements, and uh, that's what Christians are. 
And in our hearts, we kind of feel, yeah, I, that, that's what I think I'm meant to be. Uh, I'm not sure that's necessarily what I am. Uh, and sometimes we, we, we come alive to that reality. It kind of shocks us. And we think, oh, God, I want to do better. You can go away to a conference, maybe. And you set other things aside. You focus on God. Uh, and just getting away, uh, you get a time to reflect. You think, Lord, I wish I was reigning in life. I really want to. It can happen at the end of a year. You come to the end of the year. Uh, you look back. You think, Lord, that wasn't exactly what I had in mind. Uh, I'm sorry about last year. But here's a new year stretching out before me. Oh, Lord, I want to do better. And sometimes I want to reign in life, right? What shall I do about it? And we can begin to weigh up what we might do. And sometimes we kind of set ourselves some rules to live by, right? What I'm going to do is I'm going to put my alarm clock back. I'm going to get up early. I'm going to pray longer. Uh, then I'm going to read my Bible. I'll read it right through this year. I'm going to read it right through. That means I'm going to read like about eight, eight or nine pages a day. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to do that. I'm going to witness. And what we do is we kind of set ourselves some rules that if we can keep the rules, we will be reigning in life. That's how we think, well, I'm going to do it. I do it by setting some targets. And the very moment we do that, we actually begin to lose the way because that's not what the verse says. It doesn't say we'll reign in life by keeping rules. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians and chapter 5, uh, and verse 4, he says, you who would be justified by law have fallen away from grace. You've fallen away from grace. Sometimes we use that phrase about fallen from grace. We might say, well, have you seen Johnny lately? No, I think maybe he's fallen from grace. And we kind of use it like he's backslidden. But the way Paul uses it is you've fallen away from grace into law keeping. You've fallen from grace. You've imposed laws. And uh, he, he's, he's really uh, very upset with them. In fact, he says in Romans and uh, chapter 6, sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. Now, it's interesting. When Paul wrote to the Galatians, the reason he wrote to them was this. He went to Galatia as an apostle. He preached the gospel and many responded and he built a church. And, and if you read Galatians, it sounds like a great church. It talks about the Holy Spirit having come, signs and wonders are taking place. God is evidently among them. It's a healthy, bright, young church. And Paul moves on from there. He's an apostle. He's going to go and plant some other churches. And when he leaves Galatia, the Bible explains that Judaizers moved in behind him. Who were Judaizers? Well, they were guys who were probably Christians, but who had come from a Jewish background and, and were kind of confused between the two testaments or covenants. And they came in uh, effectively to this Gentile church and said, hey, it's great, you have received our Messiah. Uh, the Old Testament prophets told us that Gentiles would come. This is wonderful. Welcome, you've received our Messiah. You are so welcome. This is such good news. Um, by the way, um, we've known him for centuries. Uh, we know what he requires. Uh, and really, um, you, should, uh, you should keep the feast days. Uh, and actually, you shouldn't eat that kind of food. We never have eaten that kind of food. It's not allowed. Don't eat that sort of food. 
and um, you should keep the Sabbath, must keep the Sabbath, and actually, actually you should get circumcised. And what they're doing is they're adding these rules in order to make people feel that they're fully safe and secure and acceptable to God. And Paul writes what we call in our Bible the letter to the Galatians, and it's his angriest letter. He's furious because they are confusing the gospel. They're confusing it because in Christ, they are already thoroughly accepted. And they're confusing things by saying, well, yeah, it's okay, you've received the Messiah, but you need to add these things to make sure that you are all right. Now, you won't find anybody bringing those kind of Jewish things to you, but you will find sometimes something similar to that. So that maybe you'll find someone will come to you and say, have you become a Christian? Oh, yeah, I've become a Christian. Great. I think something like this happened to me, rather like this. You've become a Christian? Yeah. Oh, good. Can I help you? Oh, please do. Right, you, you must read your Bible every day. Uh, okay, got it, I will. Um, you must pray every day. Okay, I'll do that, I'll pray every day. Um, and, and you, I think probably you shouldn't do your hair like that. Okay. And um, maybe you shouldn't wear, wear those kind of clothes. So you're thinking, okay, got it, got it, got it. And the more things they're telling you, you're kind of shrinking under the weight of things you've got to do. And, and, and you think, hey, I feel so wonderfully released by the gospel. In fact, you don't. You feel, I've picked up a lot of things I have to do. And so we get a bit confused. Did we just come into liberty? Or did we just come into a lot of responsibility? What happened to me? And so we get very confused. And Paul says, listen, you've fallen from grace. And then he says, Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. You think, well, what do you mean? Because Jesus said, the law will never pass away. That's what Jesus said. How can Paul say that you're not under law? I mean, aren't they in, don't they contradict one another? You might say, you know, if we said a show of hands, how many of us here believe Christians are under the law? Stick up your hand. Or how many of us think Christians are not under the law? I think we might be thinking, I wonder, I wonder, which is Tom putting his hand up for one? Where are we? And we can get a bit confused. We're not quite sure because Jesus said it will never pass away. How can we just drift off and ignore it? So I just want to turn over the page, if you've still got your Bible there, and read the first half a dozen verses of Romans 7, okay? The first half a dozen verses, and uh, we'll just see a little picture here that Paul paints for us. Romans 7 he says this, don't you know, brothers, from speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he's living. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband's living, she's joined to another man, she should be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, so that she's not an adulteress, though she's joined to another man. Therefore, my brothers, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Verse 6. Now we've been released from the law, 
having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit, not in oldness of the letter. Okay, so Paul is painting a picture here to help us with what's happened. Galatians would take longer to look at. Half a dozen verses here in Romans sets it out. And the picture he paints is one of marriage. And he's saying that we, the human race, we, it's like we are married to the law. The law is telling us his requirements. We're the wife of the law. And the law is saying, you shall not do this, you shall not do this, and, and telling us his requirements. He has authority over us. We're kind of married to him. He's telling us what he requires. And I said, no, you mustn't do this, you mustn't do that. Okay. Um, he's telling us that the good stuff, you can't argue with it because it's all good stuff. One thing we just need to remember, and I'll come back to it a little later, is the Bible calls Satan the accuser of the brothers and sisters. And he accuses us day and night. It says that in the book of Revelation. So it's like accusation is Satan's main weapon. He accuses, he keeps on telling us, you're no good. You call yourself a Christian. He puts you down. You should be doing more. That's his main weapon, Satan's main weapon. His very name means accuser. He's trying to put you down. We'll come back to that later. But he kind of gets behind this relationship we have with the law. So the law is saying, this is what I require. Don't do this. Don't do that. And you can't argue with him because he's right. They're very good laws. But he'll never actually lift a finger to help you. So you've got this kind of perfectionist husband who's making requirements of you. So you feel you're falling short. You can't argue because he's right. And Jesus said he's never going to die. So you're permanently married to a fault-finding, perfect husband who are never going to help you and he's never going to die. So that's the position. It's terrible. It's absolutely dreadful that we are in this situation with this husband who just makes us feel inadequate and Satan gets behind that, telling us how bad we are. This is the image that Paul is painting in this passage. And then, to our absolute amazement, because you think, how can I get out of this? I would like to become part of the bride of Christ. But the passage says, no, you can't. You've already got a husband. You're married to the Lord. He has authority over you. And then in verse 4, he tells us this extraordinary thing. Therefore, my brothers, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. Okay, this is very, very important now. It sounds like the way he approaches the chapter that the law needs to die. He says, look, while you're married to him, you can't do anything else while he's still alive. And it sounds like he's got to die. But Jesus said he's never going to die. So how do we get out of this? Well, Paul says amazingly in verse 4, you were made to die through the body of Christ. What does it mean through the body of Christ? It means through your relationship with Jesus, you who are in Christ. What happened to Christ affects you. That's the whole argument of the New Testament, really, that we are united to Jesus. So what's, the, what's Jesus' relationship with the law? Well, he has two relationships with the law. The first one is this, absolute perfection. The Bible calls him innocent. He's an innocent one. He's spotless. That's the language that's used about him. 
he said towards the end of his ministry, which of you finds fault with me? Of course, no one. But he said, Satan's coming. He's got nothing on me. So Jesus was perfect in his relationship with the law. He was innocent, holy, righteous. The law had no problems with him. And then we come to the cross and an amazing thing happens. Paul says this, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That at the cross, Jesus became the personification of our sin, our shame, our failure. He took it upon himself. He became sin. God somehow put the whole thing on Jesus and the law found him guilty and he was punished and judged for all our law breaking and he died to the law once and for all. The law is satisfied. Jesus paid the price. He died once and for all to law and it's finished. It's all over. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. I've done it. I've paid for it. All guilt is gone. The law's work is finished. It's over. It's done. Praise God. So Jesus died to the law once and for all. And Paul says this, you, you, you believers who are in Christ were made to die to the law. In Christ, he died to the law for us. We died to the law in him. We have no more relationship with the law. Praise God. We are not under law. The law stays living. Paul says in Timothy, the law is good. Provided you use it lawfully, knowing it's not for the righteous, but for sinners. God's holy requirements still thundered out. The Ten Commandments are still spoken out. But Paul says they're not for the righteous. They're for sinners. The standards are still being stated. But Christians have already died because Jesus has already paid the price, died to the Lord once for all, and we were in him when it happened. And then he says this. He doesn't leave it there because he says in verse 4, you were made to die to the Lord that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead. Now, who's that? <laughs> well, it's Jesus. We have died to that husband in order that we might be joined to this other husband, that we might bear fruit for God. Now, that's a wonderful thing. We've finished with that husband. We've got a new husband. And comes this new theme that you might bear fruit. Now, there was no reference to fruit bearing in relationship with the law. The law didn't make us bear fruit. But now we've been joined to a husband who makes us bear fruit. It's interesting. It's in Galatians and chapter 3 and verse 21. It says this, if a law had been given that was able to impart life, then righteousness would have come by the law. Right? If a law had been given that could impart life, it was, if there was a life-giving law, then, of course, yeah, righteousness would have come by the law. Let's just get into all the schools. Let's tell the teenagers, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Let's just go and tell them. We can change the world. Just go and tell them the law. But Paul says this, if a law had been given, that could impart life. If the law could change lives. If the law could make us fruitful. But the law can't impart life. He's an impotent husband. 
He's not a life-imparting husband. He just tells me the rules. He shows me where I fall short. He tells me God's holy requirements, but he doesn't impart any life into me. So he just leaves me feeling unworthy. I fall short. He can't impart life. If a law had, that could impart life had been given, yeah, well, we can change the world. Just tell them the law. But he can't do it. And so now we've died to the law in order that joined to another who'd been raised from the dead, Jesus, in order that we might bear fruit. Because this new husband is a life-imparting husband. He makes me bear fruit. He, he says, my peace, I give you. My joy, I give you. My love, I pour it out in your heart by the Holy Spirit. Abide in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. So this life-imparting husband changes us from the inside. We're no longer serving the letter which kills, but the spirit which gives life. It's a completely new husband. We're, we're joined to one who gives life, who gives kindness and mercy. Now, you meet many Christians who say, how are you getting on? And sometimes they say, oh, I've been up and down. I'd like to suggest we're not so much up and down as we kind of go husband to husband. We don't walk away free. We kind of carry some of this old relationship because some people say, oh, no, you need some law. You need some law. You've got to keep some law. And that doesn't exactly what it does not say. And I would say when people say that up and down, it's more they're kind of husband to husband. It's like when they do feel, I've not done well lately. I feel I've grown a bit lukewarm. And, and, and we say to Jesus, say, Lord, I'm, I'm so sorry the way I've been. I know what I'll do, Lord. I'll, I'll, I'll keep this rule. I'll keep this rule. I'll keep this rule. I'll keep this rule. Uh, will, will that be good? I mean, try that in the world. Say, to develop your good relationship with your new husband, you just spend loads of time with your old husband. Obviously not the way through. We don't need a way to the way. He is the way. He says in the book of Revelation to a lukewarm church, I'm standing outside. I'm knocking the door. If anyone hears my voice and keeps the rules. No, it doesn't say that. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him. I'll sup with him. He's going to come in. He's going to change us from the inside. So Jesus is the life-imparting husband. And we don't need ever to go back to the old husband. Our problem is this. Because the devil is the accuser, we can often feel kind of condemned. You don't do enough of this. You don't do that. You should do this. And condemnation kind of hits us. And very often we try to overcome condemnation by doing more stuff. So that we, we think, well, I'll pray longer. I'll read my Bible more. We're trying to get rid of this sense of falling short. So we think, I'll try and add to my righteousness in order to overcome these accusations. And we're supposed to try to cover up, say this, my right arm represents my awareness of falling short. And I try and cover it over. I'll pray longer. I'll read my Bible more. I'll witness more. And we're trying to cover over this sense of guilt. Uh, and then, and then the enemy attacks you. So I'm trying harder. I'm trying harder. Uh, say, uh, I'm making some progress. Uh, and then he says, uh, "Have you heard about Jenny? No. What about Jenny? She fasts twice a week. Oh no, gosh! I've got to read my Bible. I've got to pray. I fast twice a week. 
and, and you start adding more and more things you do to try and feel good, to shake off this condemnation. And you're trying to get rid of condemnation by sanctification. And it never, never works. In fact, the enemy comes to you and says, how are you getting on? He says, well, I'm reading my Bible, I'm praying, I'm fasting twice a week. He says, I expect you're quite, yes, I am pleased. I expect you're quite proud. Oh, no, I'm proud. Oh, dear. And I, I, I can't win. It's like when I'm doing badly, I'm doing badly. And if I'm doing well, I'm doing badly because I'm proud. And some, some people just give up on church because it's too hard. I can't keep up Christianity. It's too hard. And they've just missed the point. The gospel is good news. It's not good advice. It's good news. And the good news is there's something else that covers my guilt. It's not sanctification. It's called justification. And justification thoroughly wipes out all my guilt, all my falling short. And I don't try, as Paul says to the Philippians, to go about trying to establish my own righteousness based on law instead of receiving the righteousness that comes as a gift from God. And many, many Christians subconsciously, subconsciously, they're trying to feel good by how they're doing with their various duties. And if they're not doing very well, they get subject to this guilt. They haven't seen the glorious truth where it says, for instance, in Romans 8 and verse 1, therefore there is now, now, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The guy I knew said when he first saw that verse, Romans 8, 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He said he underlined the, map, underlined the verse so much it went right through to the maps. It's like, wow, I am free. There's no condemnation. I'm a free agent. We need to know that, grasp that, celebrate that. God has done an amazing thing for us to set us free from our guilt, our shame. That's what he's done. We're not under law. We don't satisfy God by relating to law. That relationship's over, over. He's got nothing more to say to me. It says in verse 6, we have been discharged from the law. It's like a soldier having finished a, a period of military service, having got used to being told by the sergeant what to do. And then he's, he's over, he's discharged, he's not a soldier anymore. And the sergeant comes around the corner and says, hey, soldier, what are you doing? Sergeant, oh, wait a minute, I'm out of here. Bye, Sarge. And he can't touch it because you're not anymore in the army. It's over, it's finished. So we are discharged from the law. We live under grace, not law. It's a new relationship God has brought us under. And he's made us accept it because of what Jesus has done. And then, praise God, he gives us the free gift of righteousness. You see, if we don't have hold of this, we, we tend to get under all kinds of pressure. Uh, uh, let me just kind of pretend uh, I'm one of the wives in the church, okay? So... We, know, we, we say, I'm seated, at Lord, I'm not, I belong to you, I'm accepted in the beloved. Then, then we say, tomorrow morning I'm going to pray, all right? So I'm going to pretend I'm one of the wives here. I'll pray for my husband tomorrow. Lord Jesus, I'm praying for my husband at work today, make him a blessing. Uh, Lord, uh, I pray let his light shine. You know, he's a fine man. Um, uh, but Lord, I just feel, uh, Lord, he's under such pressure. Um, I'd love to bless him. Uh, maybe I could, I could give him a surprise. Uh, maybe I could do a nice meal for him, yeah. Maybe I'll go down to the store, I'll get a nice meal, and uh, 
uh, maybe I could, yeah, what is, oh, I'm supposed to be praying, I'm supposed to be praying, uh, oh, oh, hold on, I'm just praying, oh, yeah, I'm praying, aren't I? Um, uh, what should we pray? Oh, it's the missionaries coming. A missionary on Friday. It's the missionary supper. The missionaries are coming to speak to us. Right. We're going to have the missionary supper. Lord, bless the missionaries when they come. Uh, let them tell us about what they're doing. Uh, Lord, we pray that. I pray that. Um, uh, Lord, we just get stirred by their talk at the supper. Oh yeah, I said I. I said I'd get the the salad for the supper. I haven't got the salad. I must, I must go and get the salad. Oh, I know, I could get, I'll get that meal for my husband at the same time. Oh, yeah, that'd be fun. I could get the salad, but at the same time, I'll get the food. I'll get my husband a nice surprise. Oh, that'd be such fun. Then Satan comes, you see. He says, oh, mighty woman of intercession, are you prevailing in the heavenlies? You think, ah, oh, prevailing in the heavenlies. I'm useless. I, I, I can't pray. My mind goes off. I get wandering away. I, I'm useless prayer. I'm useless prayer. I'm, I had a terrible time. Oh, dear, oh, dear. My, my prayer life's a mess. Um, I better get back to my Bible reading. Uh, where was I in my Bible reading? Yeah, I know. I was, uh, I was 13 days behind, wasn't I? I remember. And, um, yeah, here we go. Yeah, I was in Leviticus. That's right. And uh, I better do my Bible reading. Yeah, so... Uh, the priest shall remove uh, from the sacrifice all the fat of the bull of the sin offering, uh, the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat which is on the entrails, and the two kidneys, which the, with the fat that is on them, which is on the loins and the lobe of the liver, which he shall remove with the kidneys. See, and then Satan says, getting a lot out of it, are we? And you say, I don't understand. I, I don't, I'm useless. I can't understand my Bible. I can't pray. I should probably have a terrible day now. I mean, what dreadful devotional morning. I should, God can't be pleased with me. And what happens is we, we quickly feel, because I didn't pray well this morning, and I didn't seem to understand the passage, and I'm behind anyway, I'm useless. Whereas the, that is just not how it is. You say, you say Terry, don't, don't you read the Bible? Yeah, I read it a lot. I'm trying to preach for it now. But I don't read it and say, hey, whole chapter this morning, Lord. Two pages, pretty good. Get marks for that. You know, prayed for half an hour. Hey, get marks for that. I'm not trying to impress God. I'm in Christ. He's already impressed him. I don't need to impress him. Jesus has impressed him, and I'm hidden in Christ. Hallelujah. I've got all his righteousness given to me as a gift. I reign in life because of the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. That's what makes me reign in life. I don't reign in life because I had a good prayer meeting this morning. I don't reign in life because I've got a really good insight. No, I love reading the Bible, but I don't do it to impress God. I don't pray and say, Lord, hey, Lord, half an hour, how must get marks for that. No, no, no. In Christ, he's made me accept it. I, I pray because I want to pray. I'll get some answers. I don't pray to impress God. Jesus has already impressed him. Hallelujah. You can't improve on that. Even in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prepared us for this. We reign in life not only because we're under grace, not law, but because of the free gift of righteousness. It says that in the verse we started with in Romans chapter 4. We reign in life, I'm five. We reign in life because of his righteousness. In the Old Testament, they were told to bring a lamb to the priest. 
And when I came to the, the, the priest, I had to bring a perfect lamb. I had to be spotless. So when they brought the lamb, it shouldn't be diseased. So they would give it to the, the priest, and the priest would inspect the lamb. He's looking, see, is it blind? Has it got any broken bones? And he's not, looking at, he's not looking at you. It's not that you have to say, I hope he doesn't notice this is all torn. I hope he doesn't notice I've got all mud on here. It's irrelevant. All eyes are on the lamb. And the lamb, they look at the lamb. Is it blind? No. Any broken limbs? No. Is it diseased? No. It's perfect. There's nothing wrong with your lamb. Hallelujah. That means I'm accepted. There's nothing wrong with my lamb. Even Pilate said, I find no fault in him. There's nothing wrong with my lamb. I'm accepted. I'm accepted. I remember once I was praying, and as I was praying, I, 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 this honestly happened to me. I was praying one day, and as I was praying, I felt God reminded me of that story in the Old Testament when Jacob came to his blind old father, Isaac, and he knew he had a son he really loved. He's called Esau. And Esau was out. So Jacob took Esau's clothes and put skins around his hands and around his neck because his brother was a hairy guy. And he went hidden in Esau, his clothes, his skins, as it were, and came to his blind father, hoping against hope that his blind father wouldn't realize and would think it was the son he loved. And get, he wanted to get a blessing. You can read about it in the Old Testament. So Jacob comes to his blind father. He's hoping against hope that he won't be recognized, really. And I was praying, and I felt God reminded me of the story and said to me, don't fear that I'll find you hidden in the sun that I love because I placed you in the sun that I love. That's the way I've saved you. I've put you inside the son that I love. I've clothed you with his spotless righteousness. I, I, I don't fear I'm going to find you in there like Jacob must have been scared. Will he find me? God said we don't be scared. And it says in Ephesians chapter 1, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. We are accepted in the son that he loves. Hallelujah. All his spotless righteousness is given to me. I come before the Father absolutely spotless because of Jesus. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he said his testimony was one day he was walking and feeling a bit low. And he said, I had a vision. Interesting, that old Puritan had a vision. And he said, I had a vision of Jesus as my righteousness, spotless righteousness. And he said, I realized that whether I felt low, I couldn't take away from his righteousness. And if I felt good, I couldn't add to his righteousness because Jesus Christ is my righteousness. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So when I wake up tomorrow, Jesus is my righteousness. He is my righteousness. From now on, he has sanctified us for all time. He has declared us righteous as a gift. And beloved, we need to just never move from that ground. See, some people say, well, when you pray, start with confession of sin. You know, it kind of clears the decks. Now, Jesus didn't say that. And some people get so ensnared with that because they think, well, I've got to come to God and I start with my sin. Don't do that. Jesus didn't say that. 
Because what will happen is you say, Lord, I'm just sorry about this. And then the accuser of the brother whispers in your ear, what about this as well? Oh, yeah, and this, and this, and I'm sorry about, oh, I'm sorry about this. So for some people, prayer is misery because it's where you get reminded of where you fall short. But when I pray, and the Bible says, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Get God-centered, your father relationship. He's a father. He's a wonderful father. He's a father that goes looking for prodigals. Some people say, oh, I didn't have a good father. Well, you just know that can be true. But the father described in the Bible is the father of the prodigal. The, the, the prodigal son's wasted everything. I mean, he's a waster. He goes back home and he's going to say, look, I'm not worthy to be called your son. I know I've blown it, but I know you employ people. Can I be your servant? Because I can't get work. So I know I can't be a son, but can I be a servant? And the father is looking to the horizon every day to see if this son's coming back. And over the horizon comes, you think, is that him? It could be him. That's his gate. I do believe that's him. And the father runs to the son. But he's all messy. No, no, no. He embraces him, falls on him, kisses him, puts new clothes on him, ring on his fingers, shoes on his feet. That's the father we come to. Every day I come, here I am, father. And he throws a party. God loves us. He wants us to know him, love him. Build a strong relationship, secure in grace, know we're beloved. If you use the Lord's Prayer, which is a helpful structure, Jesus gave that to his apostles. He said to his apostles, they said, how do you pray? Teach us to pray. He gave us the Lord's Prayer. I don't think just to kind of repeat it, but it's a great structure. And so I start, Father, hallowed be your name. I love it. I sing it out. Father, I can call you Father. It's wonderful. I'm your son. I come as, and now if you go through, you come to later on and forgive us our trespasses. We don't become indifferent. We say, Lord, I, I forgive me if there are stuff, but I come to Him as Father. I come to worship. I come because I'm loved, accepted, and celebrated. And so, dear friends, it's very, very important to settle this that we're not under law. We don't have a relationship with God based on rules we try to keep. We have a relationship with God based on Jesus, that Jesus fulfilled every law. He was righteous, spotless, perfect, absolutely perfect. But on the cross, he took away our guilt. The law is satisfied. The law has done its job, and Jesus took our guilt utterly away. It's over. It's finished. He's done his job. Paul says in Galatians, you don't go back to that schoolmaster. That's all over. Now you're a son. You come to your father. It's a whole new relationship. We enjoy this love. We celebrate this grace. Of course, there's much more to go on with, but that's bottom line. That is fundamental. That settles things. I know once I was preaching in, in South Africa. I was in Cape Town, a place called Constantia in Cape Town, and it was very hot um, and uh, about 90 degrees. I know you speak Fahrenheit in America. About 90, 92, uh, ever so hot. And people were in shorts and T-shirts. And uh, it's a big meeting, hundreds of people in this great big tent. Uh, and I preached about the grace of God. And at the end, a guy came up, a great big husband, 
and his wife. His wife was in a navy blue suit and a hat and shoes and gloves. I mean, she looked really sharp, but she's crying. And she said to me, is what you said true? I said, but it's all Bible verses, absolutely true. And she said, I've been a Christian as long as I can remember. I've never heard that before. I've never heard that before. That, I, that it's done. The price is paid. It's over. It's done. I've never heard that. I said, it's true. So we just prayed briefly. I was back a year later in Cape Town. And I saw this great big guy. It's the husband I recognize. such a huge fella. And he's walking by. And, this, and his wife, so bright. And he said to me, it's like I've got a new wife. She suddenly saw grace and fell in love with God and her whole relationship changed. She'd been a Christian as long as she could remember, but she'd never grasped grace before. So maybe, maybe it's been true for you. Maybe you've never quite grasped it before. It's so important that we get hold of it. Otherwise, we kind of get saved, but we're not sure of our relationship. And are I doing well enough? Am I keeping it up? I wonder if I've got what it takes. No, no. The important thing is that Jesus has done it for us. He's done it for us. After that, we begin to walk worthy of what he's done. But you can't add to it. You can't improve on perfection. We're accepted in the blood. He has sanctified us. He's, he's accepted us for all time. Hallelujah. It's a done deal. God has done it. We celebrate it. We walk out free because of what Jesus has done. I do hope and pray that this is kind of clear, that we take it on board. I've written a book called God's Lavish Grace. You might find that helpful if you want to get it on Amazon. It's available there. You can get it as an e-book. But just keep pursuing it. Make sure you've got it in your heart. And it'll change you. It changed my whole experience of God. That we can know him, that he's for us. The psalmist said this, this I know, God is for me. So important, you know that in your heart. God's for me. He's not against me. I pray this might be a help to you. Thank you, Tom. Over to you again, my friend. <laughs>